Hello, everybody. So we get to do the big group hug, right? Big group cyber hug. Hi, everybody. Nice to see. Really, it's a delight to, to scan across here and <clears throat> say hi to all my humanoid friends out there. Hello, humanoids. <laughs> you know, you realize you don't exist, right? You're just you're just little little pixels of in floating in cyberspace, hitting my eyes. Nice. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We do this uh, this gathering. We started it um, in case you're here for the first time. We started it last year, over a year ago, with the virus thing, just to kind of hang out, and we're we're continuing to hang out. So here we are. Um, I show up. I love these things because I don't have to prepare. I just pop up. Um, if something comes to my mind, I riff on it. If not, um, I go right to the questions. So I love it. Um, and so I'll say a few comments about, we got some really cool things coming up and then we'll see where this goes, either with um, riffing on, on some of the questions that came in or maybe some of the stuff I was writing this morning. But a couple of cool things, um, really cool interviews coming up for those of you who are nightclub members. So Benjamin Baird, I'm gonna interview him tomorrow. He's a really cool uh, whippersnapper neuroscientist out of, um, he works in Giulio Tononi's lab, who's, he's like one of the world's most esteemed neuroscientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And what's really cool about this is he's the neuroscientist, one of them that I've been working with for the last couple of months, um, trying to design this study on, on what's called um, minimal phenomenal experience. You know, the, as you know, the academics, the scientists, everybody has to have their own language. In fact, I remember Candace Pert once said, the, the esteemed neuroscientist, she said, she said that, you know, for a scientist to use another person's terminology is akin to having them use their toothbrush, which I thought was like perfect, right? You just don't do that. So everybody has to have their special, you know, highfalutin. Again, I, I, I get it. I totally get it. It's like legalese, you know, you have to have the academies, the scientific ease. And so um, Ben and I, and a couple other uh, now scientists and philosophers, um, we're teaming up to talk about minimal phenomenal experience, which is a scientific way to talk about uh, formless awareness and things like attaining lucidity and deep dreamless sleep. So Ben and I, tomorrow I'm gonna interview him we're going to talk about this the study that we have in mind um how we're actually designing it and then uh he's one of the leading researchers in the world these days on lucid dreaming i met him originally when i did a program with Stephen LeBaire, so he's kind of a protege of stevens they published papers together he's really prolific he's really smart and so i'm super excited about it um because not only is he a, a really pretty brilliant neuroscientist but he's also a practitioner and he's really into lucid dreaming. So that's really cool. So the other, I got a couple other really good ones. So Kulri Chowdhury, she's an MD. <clears throat> I mentioned her name a couple times. She's finally committed. We're just trying to set up a time. She's a really cool gal. She, she's a, neuro, uh, a neurologist, MD, and also a specialist in Ayurvedic medicine and Siddha medicine. And she wrote this really great book. <clears throat> it's called Sound, um, Sound Medicine. Nice double entendre, sound medicine. How to use the ancient science of sound to heal body and mind or something like that. This is a really good book because she conjoins some cutting edge science that I was not aware of. Things like sound psychology, how 
they're actually able to detect that every cell has its particular kind of signatures, almost song. Um, it's really cool stuff. And so she conjoins, you know, again, her, her knowledge as a Western um, neurologist. Um, and I think she's published like 20 papers with her work as a, as a Ayurvedic practitioner and also a long-term student of Hinduism. So we're gonna go deep into mantra, how do mantras work? How do they work with healing? Um, the whole process of sound. Um, I, I'm really excited about that with her. Uh, Ian Baker, um, I, I just got word from him this morning. He's a really cool guy. Um, those of you who took the program I did with uh, Bob Thurman a couple of weeks ago on Tantric Pure Lands, you know, I talked a lot at the very end of that about these hidden lands. They're called Bayo, B-E-Y-U-L. And Ian's one of the world's authorities on this topic. Um, he wrote a wonderful book years ago called uh, The Heart of the World. And he, he gives these, in fact, I might actually see if I can bring him on to do this slideshow thing, because I, I attended a slideshow. I mean, I met him originally in London years ago at a joint thing that he put on that I was invited to present at. But he puts on the most mind-bending slideshow about going to these hidden lands and, and what they're all about. So I'm super jazzed about being able to chat with Ian. He's a really sharp guy. Um, voted one of the great, I think by National Geographic, one of the top 10, you know, adventurers on the planet today. So he's this kind of rugged guy uh, who just is not afraid to get down and dirty in the most, you know, incredible kind of pilgrimage sites. And he's also a really deep scholar practitioner of uh, Tibetan Buddhism. So I'm really, I just nailed that this morning. And then Claire Johnson, who I mentioned, who's my dear friend, wrote this book on the art of transforming nightmares and she's booked for May. So we got some really good stuff coming up. So today, uh, what should we talk about? Um, here's what I thought I would start. And then again, the bulk of what we do here is not me riffing, but more um, us talking about stuff that you all want to talk about. So this is the place to bring your questions. But I do want to mention a little bit, I can share a few minutes um, I sometimes like to share with you what I was just working on this morning in my writing. So every day I get up pretty early, I do my practice. I come down here into my little man cave <laughs> um, and I do my little nerdy thing for hours on end. And, uh, and so this is what I was working on this morning. This is um, part of this book that I've been working on. Um, uh, okay, I'm mindful, now what? Exploring the wonders of the mind. Um, and so this is section six of the book uh, on the nocturnal meditations. And so uh, let me just read a little bit about what I was writing today, just as, as a, maybe a seed for some conversation. And then I'm, I'm probably going to return and say more about this in the upcoming weeks, because especially this first topic on liminal dreaming, very, very little material out there. And so I'm doing a little research on it. I want to share some of what I've discovered. So this is what I wrote just this morning. The delightful and often surprising aspect of expanding our mindfulness includes opening to the wonders of the nocturnal mind. So that's what this book does. It, it takes this incredibly um, precious, valuable mindfulness revolution. It um, kind of substantiates it and then gently criticizes it in terms of like, you know, what, what's next? Nocturnal here not only includes traditional meaning of the night, but it's also a code word for subtle. So nocturnal meditations are subtle meditations. 
As we progress in, on our journey into deeper and more subtle dimensions, we can step into the mysterious world of the night and uncover the treasures hidden within the unconscious mind. And so that's where this stuff gets super cool. So I'm just gonna run spontaneous commentary on this, is that what, what these nocturnal meditations really do that makes them so valuable is they're, they're hybrid states of consciousness where you can the conscious mind can meet the, the unconscious mind. Um, short of hypnosis, and even then only to a certain extent, that this just doesn't happen. And this is like super important because until we can bring these unconscious processes into the light of conscious awareness, that's what it means to be asleep spiritually. Um, that's what it means to live on automatic ignorance. We're all sleepwalkers in that sense, where the vast majority, 95, you know, you've heard me say this, commenting on the sciences that support it, 95, at least 95% of what we do is dictated by these unconscious processes. I mean, we're, we're clueless as to why we do what we do. So with these meditations, we can bring these um, aspects of unconscious mind into the light of awareness. Five nocturnal meditations are here to greet us on this journey and to guide us on the voyage into the center of ourselves. Liminal dreaming, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, sleep yoga, bardo yoga. The trip is akin to what happens when you step outside from a br brightly lit room into a nighttime vista. At first, you can't see a thing. Your pupils are so constricted from the light that you're temporarily blind, right? We've all had this experience, right? But if you're patient and keep your eyes open, you slowly accommodate to the dark. You become familiar with it, the very definition of meditation in Tibetan. And you start to see things never seen before, right? You've done this, right? You step outside, you can't see squat, nothing. But if you just keep your eyes open, everything dilates, opens, expands, whoa, all the stuff starts to appear. It's like infrared, I'm wearing infrared nighttime goggles. You start to see all the stuff that was been there, always been there, but you've never seen it before. You discover dimensions, literally discover dimensions of your mind that have always been there, but your daytime awareness was too constricted to see. Our journey into the night and therefore into the subtle dimensions of the mind elegantly follows our theme of opening. So that's one of the narratives of this whole book is opening, opening, opening. We're going to open the aperture of our awareness, dilate our consciousness to allow more light into our mind and life. The wonders of the mind become even more wondrous when we step with eyes wide open into the marvels of the nocturnal mind. Why should we bother with these practices? Life is already so full. Many people put up a do not disturb sign when it comes to their sleep and rule out the nocturnal meditations, but in so doing, they limit their lives. The nocturnal meditations are a unique form of night school. If we take lucid dreaming alone, we spend over six years in the dream state and enter the dream world over 500,000 times. The meditation master, Tartung Tuku Rinpoche, this comes from his book, Openness Mind, appropriately entitled. Dreams are a reservoir of knowledge and experience that they are often overlooked as a vehicle for exploring reality. In the dream state, our bodies are at rest, yet we see and hear, move about, and are even able to learn. When we make good use of the dream state, it's almost as if our lives were doubled. Instead of 100 years, we live 200. Well, his, you get the idea, but his math isn't quite right. <laughs> because even if you were lucid throughout the entirety of the night, that's only 33% of your life. And so lucid dreaming only comprises 25% of that 33%. So his, his idea is good, but his math is a little off. <laughs> 
Lucidity is a code word for awareness. A lucid dream is a dream where you're aware that you're dreaming. So by becoming lucid in your dreams, you're extending awareness into the dream world. Just imagine how much you could learn by adding six years of awareness to your life. As the saying goes, you can't add more years to your life, but you can add more life to your years. The nocturnal meditations are like inserting a creative night shift to your life. Thoreau once said, this is such a great line from Thoreau. I mean, what a sensitive guy this, this New England transcendentalist was. Only that day dawns to which we are awake. There is more day to dawn. And so, um, yeah, I'll come back and see more about this later because then I go into this um, little riff on liminal dreaming. And so maybe I'll pause and, and we can start talking about things. There's some really great questions that came in. And then next time I'll riff a little bit more on this liminal dreaming thing, stuff that I haven't really uh, written about or taught on before. And, and also talking about liminal principle, liminality, liminal beings, liminal spaces, liminal times, um, which is a really interesting way to look at uh, places, times, people that don't fit. It, it, um, the French postmodernist um, Michel Foucault talked about these as heterotopias. I picked up this term from Ian, by the way. So I'm going to be I'm talking to Ian Baker about um, heterotopia. Literally means other different. And it refers to exactly these kind of Bardo-like spaces that are like not here, not there, not this, not that, um, which exactly what this liminal space, when you're not awake, not asleep, this kind of plasma of mind that's super interesting to explore. So next time we'll talk about liminal spaces, liminal people, like for instance, Trumper and Pache. Trumper Rinpoche was a classic luminal being, liminal being. He didn't fit anywhere. Um, he didn't fit any conventional mode. And that's why he rankled so many traditionalists. And that's why he irritated so many people because you, you could not pigeonhole this guy. In fact, I had a wonderful afternoon um, a couple months ago with David Rome, who's, who was uh, Rinpoche's personal secretary for many, many years. And he knew him really as well as anybody. And uh, he's a marvelous human being. He wrote this beautiful book called Your Body Knows the Answer, which I highly recommend, by the way. And so we were talking about Chung Rinpoche and, and, and uh, you know, just how crazy he was. And uh, he said, you know, he said, Andrew, the way I relate to him is he's just, he's an artist. He was just an artist of the mind. And he just really, like artists can get away with almost anything. He, he uh, I'm not sure, yeah. I mean, he just lived at, at a threshold that transcended conventionality. And so he's a, he's a perfect liminal being um, as our you know, LBGTQ, that, that whole classification of, of people that don't belong, so to speak, in traditional modes. So liminality as a principle helps us understand unconventionality and, and opens again our aperture, our hearts, our minds to accommodate things that may not fit in to our conventional ways of looking at things. So the liminal principle, I think is super interesting. So more on that next time. All right, let me go to the document because it's much more fun to hear from you. Okay. Hold on. And so now's the time if you want to start queuing uh, up your questions, that'd be great. But let me turn to what we got. From Ralph. What do you, what do you mean by mindfulness when it can be said that it doesn't lead to liberation in one sense? 
but that it is our natural state in another sense. Yeah, okay. Uh, so yeah, mindfulness alone, uh, Ralph, as I mentioned, and that's again, a big part of my critique in, in this book about mindfulness is mindfulness alone doesn't liberate it. It pacifies, it's a sedative um, in the best sense. It sedates, it, it literally um, tranquilizes the turmoil of, of the mind. That's colossal. I mean, that's huge. You know, in, in an age where the world is on fire, tranquility is a, a colossal contribution. And so if you wanna just like chill out in the best sense, mindfulness is for you, fantastic. But that in itself, you know, a chilled mind isn't the liberated mind. It's just a pacified mind. And so this is where mindfulness eventually, not eventually, if it's coaxed, invited um, into um, insight, meditation, vipassana, that's what liberates. That's what liberates. So mindfulness will not liberate. It, you can feel like it's a liberation just by contrast. In other words, you, you sometimes when people have a fully pacified mind for the first time in their lives, a lot of people can mistake it for enlightenment, really, because it's so profound. The contrast from having a tumultuous mind, you know, like a real tremendous surface chop on an ocean to a mind that is like crystal clear, mirror-like reflective surface of a pond that can be sometimes that transition can be so dramatic when the mind um, ceases and the winds settle that you can feel like you're enlightened. It's not enlightenment. It's a glimpse of enlightened aspects, but it's not enlightenment for sure. Guaranteed on that one. This is where you get stuck in these these jhana states, these samadhi states, these absorption states. They're they're incredibly profound sp spaces, but they're just the best of samsara. It's not it's not nirvana. So, uh, but then the question about the natural state. Yeah, so even though mindfulness does not lead to liberation, it is a natural property of the mind. It's a natural state of the mind. And that's, that's what I'm referring to there. That um, it's not the fundamental nature of the mind itself, but it is a natural state of the mind. So that's the way you, you kind of reconcile that. If that's not clear, come on and I'll, I'll try to say it another way. This one's from John. This is a good one from John. I don't buy into the dot into Donald Hoffman's idea. <laughs> Donald, Donald Hoffman is a he's a really sharp cookie. Um, you've heard me riff on him. He's this cognitive neuroscientist out of UC. Where is he now? Uh, Berkeley, uh, Santa Barbara. Anyway, UC somewhere. I'm a cautious fan of his. I I I think he's tremendously insightful and he's really courageous. He wrote this radical book um, that's causing a tremendous stir actually in the intellectual community. You've heard me mention it. Um, great title, The Case Against Reality, Why Evolution Hid, hid the Truth from Our Eyes. <clears throat> so I'm gonna go, it's quite a somewhat long question. I'll read the whole thing and then run some commentary on it. I don't buy into Hoffman's idea that nature has created this stage video game, paren, grand theft auto, <laughs> and paren. Uh, I agree with you on that, my friend, actually. I don't agree with that either. In his metaphor where competition plays out in our, in, our, in his metaphor where competition plays out in our mind, keeping us from reality. 
Overall, it has a, a lot of the boxes checked to be sure. In other words, I, uh, you're, you're saying you agree with a lot of what he says with an emptiness prognosis, but leans entirely on live or die, pass on the genes mindset. Yeah, this is this evolutionary psychology thing that, that he, he, this is a central project of his, uh, of his book that basically the principal impulse of natural selection, which he obviously subscribes to, is you know fundamentally the propagation of our genes and that everything is secondary to that. And this is where I, like you, do not agree. Uh, I mean, I agree within the limits of, of the, the kind of Darwinian naturalist, natural selection point of view, for sure. On that bandwidth of relative reality, it's true, but it's partial. It's true, but partial. And so again, this is why I'm such a huge fan of integral approaches because what, what he says within the bandwidth of what he's saying is true but it's partial. And John, this is where I think you're coming in. You realize the veracity of a great deal of what he says, but it's limited because he still, still sees the world in these fundamentally reductionist sorts of ways. I, for one, have trouble identifying with passing on genes when a beautiful body is really the one and only goal if you get my drift. Yeah, it's not the only goal. And I do get your drift, genetic, genetic drift. Pardon the pun. In other words, achievement or satisfaction is the reward of desire. Ken Wilbur, I believe, has discounted survival of the fittest. Yeah, he's not the only one. So many others that survival of the fittest has a particular bandwidth of applicability. Nature is red in tooth and claw. But as you say here, you know, the cooperation, there, there's, there's, in fact, I think similar to the advent of natural selection, Darwinian points of view was this more cooperative indicator of reality which you then turn to cooperation is an equal indicator of survival. Correct. Back to reality. <laughs> what it boils down to, what, what if it boils down to a much more obvious avenue of inquiry, bifurcated brain, left brain, right brain, our existence is completely dependent on, uh, our existence is completely dependent and delicious once you accept this reality of, of macro and micro, nested and fractal concordance of being. <laughs> Left brain attempts to navigate the essence while the right brain circumambulates the whole, circumambulates the whole, albeit an empty universe, giving us never ending duality or at least ever present duality. What do you think? What do you think of his bubbling up of consciousness? So when you talk about the bubbling up of consciousness, I, 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 I assume you're referring to Hoffman, right? Um, well, here's the deal with these guys. It, it, I think they're fantastic. Um, it's not just Hoffman, you know, Bernardo, I mentioned recently, Bernardo Kestrup's work, um, why, why Materialism is Baloney. Um, what a great title for a book. These are really smart people. Um, and if you're doing the... Tuesday group with us, the book study group, I sent links for interviews to, to a number of these people, um, to both Hoffman and to Bernard Kestrup. These guys are really great um, in that they are part of what I refer to as, as the repeal and replace strategy. Again, you've heard me say this before. To me, I look at all this like, like what the Republicans do with Obamacare, right? Just, just repeal it. They have no replacement strategy. Let's just repeal the damn thing. Well, in a similar way, both Hoffman, Kestrup, 
um, and a bunch of other uh, really clever philosophers, scientists, you know, too many to mention, they are all really powerful um, repealers. In other words, in my opinion, they don't replace, but they help repeal. And whatever helps put a dent in materialism, um, in representationalism, in the correspondence theory and duality, whatever helps dent that view, I'm behind it. But because they still come from, and I think actually Bernardo's work, this kind of cosmic consciousness that he has, that's really pretty resonant with non-Doshaiva Tantra views, and even if you're cautious, some Dzogchen views. Um, anything that even points towards that, I'm, I'm behind it. And, and the only, not the only, but one challenge, one so-called, again, this is just me, my silly bias, um, is that while these people are super smart, really articulate, bringing tremendous scholarship, science, and even mathematics to their views, there's fundamentally, as far as I can tell so far, there's no praxis. And even though people like Hoffman have hung out with, with uh, really cool, um, mostly Vedantic meditators, and there's a lot of resonance with that kind of thing, to the best of my knowledge in both their works and others, I, I have yet to see, okay, how do you actualize this view? Um, and again, it's, it's not, it's just to, to kind of phrase it, for me, these, these approaches are true, but they're partial. They're, they're, in my opinion, they're a little bit incomplete. And again, this is just my view. So this, this kind of um, what you're professing or putting forth is the, you know, the bifurcated brain approach, the left brain, right brain hemisphere, that has some validity. And I think one of the most interesting journeys there, if you haven't read it, of course, is Jill Bolte-Taylor's book, My Stroke of Insight. And then uh, Ian um, McGilchrist's a monumental, amazing book, The Master and His Emissary. Um, that is a real tour de force. Those types of books really bring very interesting neurological, neuroanatomical um, correlations to the traffic that I um, you know, mostly subscribe to. So I think what you're saying is really interesting, John, again, but I don't think I would even go, uh, I wouldn't reduce it even to the brain. You know, so this whole neural correlate thing has a lot of provisional traction, but it's not gonna take you all the way because fundamentally, um, even if you completely unite these hemispheres, in my estimation, um, in fact, this is some of the things that the, the studies that I'm gonna be, um, assisting a little bit with Ben and some of these other neuroscientists going towards, we're, we're trying to find if in fact there are any neural signatures at all, period, to these non-dualistic formless states of mind. That's a real big question. Are there in fact neural signatures, period? In other words, are these things, what, what kind of ontological primitive do you have here? What kind of platform do you have that, that um, you know, makes these, these ideas kind of workable? So I think at a certain point, my bias on this, and again, these are really great questions, so much to say here, is that fundamentally these, these completely unified states of mind not only transcend hemispheric properties, but they transform cranial properties altogether. Um, they're not reducible to brain um, in my uh, experience. Actually, I can't say experience. Um, in, in my understanding, because again, these are really subtle, deep, <laughs> challenging uh, issues. And I tend to be a little bit careful when there's any reductionist urge to slap it into any hemisphere, left or right, or anything even neurological. But this is, you know, this is, this is part of the great journey. 
Um, some of this I remain agnostic on, I don't know, but I, I just love the, ex, uh, the, the exploration, the query to me is so interesting. So great question, my friend. Um, if you wanna come on and, and toss it around a little bit with me, that's great, but that's what comes to mind. Yeah, Hoffman, uh, Kestrup, these other really smart people, you know, they don't replace, but they help repeal. Um, true, but partial, okay? All right, a couple other written ones. And then if there's someone out there live that wants to ask one, you're welcome. Uh, from Jolene, thanks for these meetings, you're welcome. Can you riff on free will? <laughs> I knew I never should have, I knew I never should have brought that topic up in my book or in my commentary. Can you riff on free will or lack thereof as it pertains to lucid dreaming versus free will or lack thereof in waking life? Well, there's no difference to me. Um, and there's only so much I'm I'm kind of willing to go down this avenue right now, Jolene, just because I've I've said so much about it recently. Um, that, you know, like what I write about in my book, um, on a relative level, there is no free will because whose will is free. I mean, on one level, it's really that simple. If there's no you, whose will is free? Um, so on one level, and I love what Chris Wallace, this is, this is a paraphrasing of his uh, thinking here, which I think is spot on. You know, the you that you think you are has no free will, <clears throat> but the you that you really are, big you, is nothing but free will. And so th this is such a colossal topic <laughs> that I've spent so much traffic with somewhat recently, uh, unless you're on there, Jolene, and want to ask something specifically about it. Um, it's only because I've, you know, pinged this around quite a bit over the last couple of weeks and, and sent out all these links to, to books and scholars and writers on it that um, unless there's something in particular you want to say, I'm gonna probably let that one go at that level. But you know, the idea is, first of all, if you're in a non-lucid dream, there's no free will, period. I mean, that's really obvious. You know, you're just being buffeted around by the contents of your unconscious mind. And so when you become lucid in a dream, the type of free will that takes place there I mean, I would see it as no different from the illusion of free will that takes place in, in the waking state. Um, so again, if there's something in addition you want to kind of say about that, you're more than welcome to come on. But otherwise, with your kind permission, I'm gonna direct you back to those sessions, especially in the book study group where I went at it, sections in my book where I write about it. Um, and then the, you know, the references I sent just to Sam Harris, um, anyway, all the stuff I tossed out there. Is that okay? So for Marina, is there info? Oh, okay, this is about one of the courses. Is there info on the Bardo's teaching the new $149 course? Well, thanks for asking about that. We just posted somewhat recently this course. I'll tell you about it in a second. I took the Pure Land teachings on Dreams of Light courses. Will the Bardo teachings be different? Yeah, they're totally different totally different. So what Marina is asking about is we posted a course, I, um, 10 week course I did last year on Bardo's in Everyday Life, which I, I, I think is the best course I've ever taught, I have to say. Um, I just loved it. And so it's completely different from um, the Pure Land teachings. And in terms of dreams of light, obviously there's some overlap. It's not like completely different. But the, 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 the course we put up there is pretty darn different. I haven't taught on most of this stuff anywhere else. So 
Um, so I guess when you're asking, will the Bardo teachings be different? I think you're probably referring to that particular course. So they're really different. Uh, again, this is like 30 hours of material. <laughs> That's a lot. I mean, um, kind of starting with some principles that I introduced in, in a brief thing I did for Tricycle Magazine last year. That's kind of what seeded this course. I did a three session freebie thing for them. And then I was so jazzed with the material, I said, whoa, you know, let's just run with it. So I, I did this 10 week course based on that. It's, it, there's nothing quite like it that, that I've taught on yet. So thank you for asking. From Sarah, is attachment to attachment a thing? <laughs> Quote unquote, <clears throat> if so, I think I've got it. What, you think you've, you've got it in terms of you understand it or you think you've got it in the sense that you're attached to attachment? <laughs> so you have to be very careful what you say on the show, Sarah, because we have to be really precise here, okay? Is attachment to attachment a thing? Well, there's no thing, all right? I mean, playing, playing with what you're saying, um, there's no thing. But is attachment to attachment a phenomena? Uh, yes. For sure, and and this you know attachment is is a kind of passive grasping. So you know the traditions talk about the three major root poisons: um, grasping, passion, aversion, aggression, or ignorance. And in in so many ways, you know, ignorance is the primary poison um, because the ignorance brings out the the illusion that there's something to grasp after in the first place. So that's what generates the secondary tertiary poisons of passion or aggression. And so grasping is uh, an active form of ignorance. Attachment is a passive form of that. So it's basically, you know, we are grasping all, I mean like all the time, all the time, passively or actively. Active grasping, we can start to detect um, passive grasping, almost by definition, you know, it's, it becomes buried in unconscious processes, but it's still uh, grasping nonetheless, it's just passive. And so we don't realize the things that we're actually attached to until what? Until they're gone. That's when this grip is revealed. You know, when someone you love dies, when something you own gets burned or stolen, when your body starts to crumble and the things you take for granted start to dissolve, then you realize, wait a second, that, then that level of grasping is revealed. That's when you start to freak. So is attachment to attachment a thing in terms of being a phenomena? For sure. And it happens at these unconscious processes. It's, it's literally there's so much to say here, Sarah, it's, it's what's called Baba Samskara. It's the most powerful of all the Samskaras, the, the fundamental habit that takes on colossal import, not only now when we're alive, but especially when we die. So um, yeah, if you want to come on again, anybody who ha I, I have addressed the question to, if you want to come on and ping some more stuff back at me, it always helps. That way I'm, I'm not just trying to derive what you're saying from black and white scribblings on this computer screen. Okay, so we got a couple live ones, Judith, and then Katie. So Judith, are you there? Oh, 
I'm here. There you go. Yeah. Hi, Andrew. Um, Andrew, I have a question about the um, in the doctrine teaching. Um, I think it's Patro Rinpoche said to one of the students, "Well, where is your mind? Uh-huh. Can, can you find you know? Can you find your mind?" And yet, uh, you, uh, many of the teachings say in the bardo, "That's all you have is your mind." Right. Correct. Isn't that a beautiful koan? It's both of those. Yeah. So the way to work with it, you know, is, is it's, this is actually a very powerful analytic meditation. The practice we started discussing on Monday nights that um, I have found this to be one of the most uh, insightful, shattering investigations I've ever done. Really deeply, deeply for days, weeks on end, asking where is mind? I mean, really. Not, not just saying, you know, oh, where's mind? And then not really looking, but really looking, where's mind? And so what, the way you reconcile that with the Bardo teachings is that when you really take a look, you, you won't find anything. You won't find any particular internal agency that you can append the label mind. Um, and this is when they say, again, I'm just, you know, spoiler alert, right? So I just, I just saved you one month's worth of investigations by giving you the answer, right? You won't find anything. But that has absolutely no meaning unless you actually do the investigation. And especially if you don't believe me, that's all the more reason to do it, is just literally, where's mine? Really look. You won't find anything. That's actually considered the best finding. Not finding is considered the best finding. So what that means is that, again, there's no, there's no, there's only a contradiction here if we feel that reality has to somehow abide by our conceptual restrictive machinations. So to say that you won't find anything is basically that's the emptiness aspect of the mind. So what you're talking about is basically, if you're in the book schedule, a way to summarize the irreducible questions for part two and three of that book. So the first part, what we're talking about here is you won't find anything, that's emptiness. Well, the minute you find emptiness, emptiness is, it also means fullness. That's the luminosity part. And so there's, that's where your second thing comes in. So on one level, mind is nothing, no thing. On another level, mind is everything. And that's exactly what people like Kostrup is saying with his cosmic consciousness approach. And so you, you can't actually have it both ways. You just don't have to, don't subscribe to this binary Aristotelian way that it has to be one way or the other. It's both. A one level mind is empty, it's nothing. On another level, mind is everything. And somewhere in there is you know, the truth. So this is the irreducible description of mind and reality as luminosity and emptiness. So that's a really good question. And, and again, you know, it's not that terribly difficult to spit out the words, but to actually have this as your direct experience, that's a different story. And that is much more important because otherwise what I'm saying here is just philosophy, uh, you know, philosophy. You want to have this as your direct experience. And the really cool thing is that when you actually look within and and just follow that one query, what is mind, it will lead you to this discovery. By discovering the empty nature of your mind, you will discover the fullness of the mind at the same time. Okay? Yeah. Andrew, does that mean that when you enter the bardo and you haven't you haven't sort of done that investigation that you, so 
presumably when you die, what you really want is the ability to um, see emptiness or experience emptiness. Well, to recognize it. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Again, there's so much to say here, but yes, to keep it in the context of what you're saying, yes, that's what. That's why they say in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, recognition and liberation are simultaneous. That's ultimate lucidity, just like in a lucid dream. So that's what you want to be able to do. You want to be able to recognize, just like in a lucid dream, which is why death is called the dream at the end of time, that in fact, what you're experiencing is the radiant display of your mind. What that mind is depends on where you are in the bardo. If you're still in the bardo of Dharmata, then that's Rigpa, that's awakened mind. If you don't recognize that and without preparation, you won't. Why should you? How can you expect to meet and recognize something you've never met? Then what happens is, you know, you kind of freak out because of that subconsciously. And then, and then the mind that kind of takes over is Sem, um, confused mind. If you don't recognize that, as the display of your own mind, then you, you contract basically out of fear and run away from that. So basically what happens in the bardo are successive levels of, of trying to get away from yourself. <laughs> because this is so fantastic, really. What happens in the bardo is, is a very concentrated, unmediated um, uh, exposure to the nature of your both uh, radiant awake mind and your confused mind. And our inability, our lack of familiarity, again, like in that reading, the very definition of meditation, you won't recognize it. No recognition, recognition, no liberation. And you try to get away from it. Um, you basically try to get away from yourself. So what constitutes reincarnation at the very deepest level is our inability to recognize ourselves and basically trying to run away from ourselves. <laughs> so we, we run away from the luminous bardo dharmata out of fear of the uh, radiant empty nature of our being into the karmic bardo becoming we don't wake up to that, we run away from that yet again and into you know, this kind of reified distraction of what we know is, is our waking reality. So in a very real sense, we spend our entire lives running away from ourselves. And that's what makes death a little bit challenging because at a certain point when you die, you can't do that anymore. Pardon the pun, because you don't have any more legs to run with, right? So your legs, your legs stop moving, the wind stop moving, Everything stops moving. It's, I think it's actually hysterical on one level, really. You, you can no longer run away from yourself when you die, right? Your legs don't work anymore, right? You have no choice. But then the question is, would you recognize? You, you, you will be forced. That's what death is. Death is a forceful form of liberation, wrathful. You will be forced to relate to your mind when you die. The question is, what are you going to do with it? And without some preparation, without some understanding, you're going to run away from yourself after death, just the way you run away from yourself right now. It's what Laka Rinpoche refers to as most of our lives is just a protracted form of active laziness. You know, we just, it, most of what we do is just active distraction therapy, <laughs> trying, trying to get away from ourselves. I, I just think it's so bloody hysterical. Um, and so, yeah, that's what's going to categorize, categorize the journey after death is our inability to be with ourselves. So again, I'll leave on this note. What's, what's the invitation here? Be with yourself now. Relate to your mind now. Become familiar with your mind now. Because when we die, the journey after death is, is a journey of the mind. Take that journey now. And then when you do that, like the Kamapa said just before he died, nothing happens. No difference. Bardos don't even exist for a person like that. 
So the you know the the point here is you can do a lot about this. You can absolutely totally one hundred percent prepare, hundred percent prepare, so that when death comes, you don't run away from yourself. You embrace yourself. You make love with your mind. You whatever metaphor you want to use, and then at that point, you because there is no you can do whatever you want. Until that point, karma is going to run the show. Andrew, can I just ask you um, if? If you have never experienced Rigpa, and if it's described to you by someone else, is that helpful? Oh, yes. It's all helpful. But, you know, here's the kicker. Again, this gets very subtle, but this is subtle stuff. We all experience it. It's just a matter of whether we recognize it. So, again, like right now, you're experiencing it. I'm not kidding. This is not a joke. You're experiencing it right now. The question is, do you recognize it? So the issue is not one of experience. The issue is one of recognition. And recognition is born from familiarization. So the key is to read about it. That points in the right direction. To have, in fact, pointing out transmission, that points more directly experientially. And then through all the practices that these wisdom traditions give us, experience it, recognize the darn thing. If you do that, you're going to be good to go. Because, you know, a brief, relatively brief level of familiarity in life is amplified. Everything's amplified when you die. That means not just the bad, also the good. So a relatively short kind of almost, I wouldn't say glimpse, but a relatively brief direct recognition during life can actually lead to full-blown liberation when you die. But the teachings say you can go from the first boomy to the 10th boomy in the bardos. So that's really good news. And that's why I'm, I'm riffing a little bit more extendedly on this is that you absolutely positively can do something about it. The, there's really good news here if you take advantage of it. If not, Good luck. <laughs> send me send me a text message from the Bardo and let me know how it goes. Okay. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Hi. Hi, Katie. Are you there? I am there. Thank you. Or I'm here <laughs> all over the place, I guess. So thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Welcome. Um, for your brilliant decoding of these. <laughs> Otherwise, pretty obscure teachings, really fabulous how you make them understandable and fun at the same time. Like, who knew that was possible? So Yeah, it's all a joke. I mean, really, on one <laughs> level, it's, it's really a joke with a, with a, if we don't change it with a really bad punchline, right? It's called death. But, <laughs> but if you catch the joke, there is no punchline. And, and the whole thing just becomes this hysterical display of like, whatever, right? So Really, on one level, it is. It's just so. It's just so silly. It's so funny. It's just this big playful game. But anyway. Anyway, so thank you, thank you, and um, so this is. I want to share something, and then if there's time, I'll ask a, a question. So um, this is about a, a movie that Andy was generous enough to show to us. A, I don't know, a month ago, Aluna. Oh, I haven't Aluna. seen that. One, have you seen that? I have not seen that. No. I, I think. Uh, well, good, because that's what I want to share. Um, when you started talking a few weeks ago about the um, experiments with the cats and the dark and such, you know, right. I thought, you know, this Aluna movie talked about a tribe in uh, Colombia and their whole mission for existence, like their, you know, mission statement, their purpose is to save the world. Like they're here to take care of Mother Earth. Oh, nice. That, that's their, you know, raison d'etre. So, 
anyway, so there's been a couple of documentaries based on the message that this tribe is trying to tell to the Westerners about how we're damaging the earth. And it's based on their understanding of the ley lines in the earth. Yeah. You know, uh-huh. like this, that we're screwing it up by uh-huh. messing with the waterways and, uh, and they see the ley lines. And so anyway, so they figured, you know, they came out of hiding, you know, somehow they survived the um, imperial rule of, uh, you know, all the imperialists. And, but, you know, they come out of hiding because things are so serious now that they've got this message. Cool. But anyway, so what was the reason I want to share this with you and, and with others who didn't see the movie is that um, they have these shamans, they call them mamas, and they spend um, from age seven months till the time they reach manhood in darkness. Oh, I've heard about that. Yeah. Wow. Darkness. Like wow. they, they, and so I went back because the fact seems so startling. And you mentioned the cats and I thought, well, here's a human yeah. experience that's gone on for, you know, who knows how long, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years where they put their shamans in darkness at age seven months. And so I went back to the movie wow. to make sure I got that right. And so I, I wrote down a few things, which totally relate to what you're talking about here. So Okay, so they're called mamas, that's the shamans. They're in darkness because there's no distraction. Thoughts are concentrated because they're taught to stare at their feet. So imagine this, they're in darkness and the discipline is staring at their feet. But they can't see them, right? What are they staring at? Anyway, go ahead. Well, but you know, I mean, they're, yeah, yeah, their focus it. is down, you know, and the, and the idea is to concentrate and connect with Aluna. So Aluna is like the great mother or maybe Prajnaparamita, you know, yeah, um, and so we're, we're not allowed to look around or I would lose the thread. That's what this, the guy said. That's why they're told to look down. We'd lose the thread if we looked around. So they're in darkness looking down. They eat certain foods. They bathe only at midnight. Um, and then uh, they come out. And it was interesting. Here's what the guy said about coming out. When I came out of the darkness, the whole world was white. I stood there staring at nature. I saw everything, the sun, the trees, the creatures. It all looked strange. So I gather it took a while, but that was what happened is that after that, the whiteness after staring at nature, they were actually able to discern. Now, so I wanted to share that because those aren't cats, those are humans. And then the other thing I wanted to say is shortly thereafter, I was taking a walk around here and, you know, on the trails, they have lovely signs. There was something about the prairie dogs and they showed a prairie dog colony and inside, you know, underground, they have nurseries. The little prairie dogs are in underground nurseries. And I thought, well, that's kind of like the mamas, you know? And then they come out at some point and they have the connection with the earth. And these people who are the mamas have connections with the earth. And anyway, I just thought it was fascinating. Like what would it be to be in total darkness, but you know, connecting with the earth like that. So anyway, so that's their mission and um, yeah, so so that I wanted to share that. And then this is a question, if, if, okay. if it's okay for me to ask sure. you a question now. Okay, a long time ago, like this is what I was studying in college. 
I mean, I can't believe how lucky I was. This is what we were doing here at CU in 1972, studying the nature of human consciousness. Robert Ornstein had this anthology. And I remember hearing back then that different cultures experience pain differently. And then the, the story that I was told, and I went back to find the reference, but I couldn't, is that some cultures experience no pain at all when they have their teeth extracted. Mm-hmm but they do experience tremendous pain when they cut their nails. Have you heard of this? Uh, no, I haven't. And, and I mean, purely as, as a somewhat, somewhat medically trained, there <laughs> kind of doesn't make sense on one level. Again, I just don't know. Again, I can't speak with authority, but I mean, you know, this is keratinized tissue. There's absolutely no sensory innervation whatsoever in, in keratinized tissue like your like your fingernails. So why they, that would experience pain. I have, I'm like clueless. I have no idea why that would be the case. doesn't make sense to me, but I mean, who am I to say, right? So yeah, I'm not sure. Is, is there more a comment or a question around that Katie or, or? Well, I just wondered if you heard of it, you know, you being a dentist, I thought, had you ever heard that some cultures experience no pain when they have- Well, here's what, no, it, it also, it all depends on how, on what, what these people are actually referring to as pain, you know, because, um, in a certain real way, and I suspect this is probably what it's getting at, you know, pain is a construct. There, there is this raw sensory awareness, yeah. but to, you know, that left in, it, in, its, in its own actually is not pain. And this is parenthetically why, what the viewer's meditations lead you to this discovery. So it all depends on how you're defining pain. Are you, are you talking about pain is what, you know, neuroscientists and, and medical inclined people call nociception, where you're you're actually having a very adverse um, stimulation to your nervous system, or are you talking about something, you know, secondary tertiary built upon that? So on one level, it would make sense to me that that pain is actually a construct. That's a label that we throw upon raw sensory awareness. And so on that level, they're not feeling pain. That makes sense to me, but you can't say they're not insensate that they're not having some kind of sensory stimulation. Otherwise they wouldn't be sentient beings. So I think there becomes very, you have to get really careful about the nomenclature. What do they mean when they talk about word pain and you don't have it? What are they exactly are they referring to? Yeah. So those sorts of things, I think, you know, um, they just kind of need to be teased out. Um, otherwise it's easy to run to some facile conclusions. So without, let, without really looking at it, those are some of the questions that I would bring to bear on something like yeah. this. You know, what, what's the reference here? What are you actually talking about? But to me, you know, I, I love all this stuff because it just, throws into question conventional standard ways of relating to things like pain or perception. And whether it leads to real truth, I can't say, but anything that can, again, somewhat like I was saying with my introductory comments, that kind of dense representationalism and normal ways of constructing our world, I think is helpful. So maybe I should watch that movie. Uh, I have heard something about it, um, but if that's what the movie's about, um, I should watch it because yeah, that's pretty cool stuff. It was, it was pretty mind-blowing, yeah. yeah. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your welcome, answer. Katie. Yeah. More than welcome. And thank you, Andy. And maybe Barry, did Barry recommend that movie, Andy? Do you remember? Um, I, I don't know. It was actually uh, Dr. Ed O'Malley who recommended that movie. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. yeah. Great. Okay. Thanks, Katie. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh-huh. So one from Carla submitted the question raised by the medium last week has been niggling me all week. You have stated in the past that you can sense the departed. 
their karma persists. Yet in your response to the medium, you emphasize the 49-day limit to the bardo, the transition, the reincarnation process, and that we have no more contact with the deceased thereafter. Uh, and that's not quite exactly what I said. Um, it maybe perhaps was uh, interpreted that way. But, you know, again, these, he, yeah, these are subtle questions. So the 49-day limit, for one thing, um, that's just kind of an average number, right? They actually say within three weeks, generally, you're transitioning. Um, some people make that transition literally within seconds, depending on the force of their transitional karmas. So, you know, the idea is where, in fact, in this liminal space, you know, where is this mind stream, uh, their so-called karma, where is it? And then um, during the transition, we have no more contact. Well, yes and no. I mean, you don't have contact with their superficial expressions, right? I mean, what you knew as that body, that's gone. But there, there is something that continues and that you can't have contact with, whether it's conscious or unconscious, that depends on the level of the sensitivity on both ends. And so this is why I say, you know, death is the end of the body. It's not the death of a, uh, the end of a relationship. And so what ceases is, is basically that outer gross presentation. The indestructible continuum, in fact, by definition, doesn't cease. That, that goes on forever. And so when we talk about contact, the contact depends on, I mean, you can have a contact with any life force at any time. There's no statute of limitations on this. Um, but the level of contact, therefore, depends on what level of being you're contacting. You're not, you know, that fundamental contact that's always available. Um, whether it's recognized, accessible to either party, that depends on the sensitivity, the level of meditation power and that sort of thing. So. Um, let me read this again and see if there's more than I can answer that. They've stated in the past that you can sense the departed for sure. Their karma persists, definitely. Yet in response to the meaning, emphasize the 49-day limit to the bardo. Yeah, that's a limit to the bardo. It's not a limit to the indestructible continuum. That's limitless. And again, like I mentioned, the 49 days don't reify that. That's just the kind of average, they say. Uh, and I've always wondered about this. Like, you know, really, I, I've, you know, with my little scientific edgy mind, um, how do they know that? Again, I, I, this is not, it's just a challenge. Like somebody take a poll, <laughs> right? It's like, no, I've, I've, I've actually pressed some llamas on this and, and got a little snippy where, you know, they have these numbers in there, you know, seven days, you go after seven, after every seven days, you recapitulate the barter process. Well, I, I, I actually tried to pin one llama down. I said, why seven days? And he, he just never gave me a satisfactory answer. He just couldn't tell me. He goes, you know, fundamentally, I realized he was just relying on his understanding of doctrine. And on one level, yeah, that's kind of okay. But on another level, I just, I, I don't know. I, I kind of struggle with these sorts of things. Um, and that's why I take all these things in what's called, it's, it's a technical term, but it's called ritualized phenomenology, where, you know, how literally do we take these numbers and things? This is a very much an open question for me. Um, so I don't, you know, I abide by some of these principles as I've come to understand them. Um, the literal aspect of that, that remains open to me. But the most important thing here is the contact issue. You, you can have contact with them. You can dedicate merit to them. You can do that sort of thing. There's no statute of limitations on that. 
It's just that according to these teachings, a lot of this makes tremendous sense. The longer they've been transitioned, the further they are ensconced in their next reified mind state, the harder it is for them to have overt recognition of this level of contact. Does that mean that there's nothing going on underneath? No, I don't think so. I think you can actually affect them and touch them at that level. But, you know, this is just um, somewhat educated conjecture on my part. I can't speak with real authority on some of these issues. I don't think anybody but a Buddha can. Okay, so maybe one more from Lynn. Um, who has a raised hand? And then maybe unless something pipes in, we'll call it for today. Hi. Um, Hi, Lynn. I want to ask about a statement I've heard a few times that's attributed to Trunk Parimpache. Okay. I'm not quite sure of the wording. I okay. think it's every state of mind is workable. Or maybe it's every state of mind can be workable. That would sound like something he would say. Yeah. Um, and I was hoping you were familiar with it so I could get you to expand on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, I can probably say something about that. Um, yeah, actually, I know what it is. I think I think I've heard it said the lion's roar is a proclamation is a proclamation that every state of mind can be workable. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah, and and again, that makes sense to me. You know, it's it's basically that if one brings a more sensitive understanding to the workings of mind, then you really do understand that whatever arises, no matter how untoward, uncomfortable, painful, disquieting it can be. Um, does in fact become workable when you understand what's actually taking place, right? So what brings about, let's look at it from another, from the opposite angle, what brings about levels of unworkability are basically levels of our inability to relate to, to the display of the mind, right? You, you either take the mind to be so bloody solid, you reify it so solidly that that, that particular situation becomes completely unworkable. You know, it's just like, I can't deal with this. I can't work with this. It's, it's whatever, too painful, too solid, too real, too intractable. Well, that really, if you look very closely at that, is all born from a, a somewhat misinformed relationship to the display of that mind. And that in a, in a real way is what these teachings are largely about, you know, to really understand somewhat connected to um, the question earlier about like, where is mind? Another question is, what is mind? What is mind? I think the, I think the last issue in uh, Buddha Dharma magazine is devoted to this topic. That, you know, when you really take a very deep look at this question, then you realize the utter workability of whatever arises. In fact, not only is it workable, but if it's related to properly, as you know, it's divine. It's not just workable, it's perfectly pure. Everything that arises is actually the display of the awakened mind. So it not, not only is it workable, it's actually divine. But, you know, to get to that divinity, we have to start with the workability. And that starts with de-reifying, altering our relationship to the traditional display. So things only become intractable, unworkable, because we impute, project qualities onto that phenomenal arising that are not inherent to that arising. Then that gives them this kind of unworkable status. But if, again, we understand how it all works, how we project, how we confer, how we impute, how we you know, transfer power, then everything becomes workable. Um, and not just workable, it becomes delightful. You know, the great perfection, the play, the absolute dance of, of the awakened state. So I, I, I can't tell you exactly where that quote comes from. I sound pretty darn sure that the Vijayadu would have said something like that. 
and it makes a whole lot of sense to me. So something like that, does that Thank land? Yeah. yeah, that works. That works, I love it, that works. See, it becomes workable, that works. <laughs> okay, anybody else? Are we good for today? I've been up since five, I'm oh, sorry? No, I just saw Katie's hand go back up if you wanna, Who? Oh, she's got the quote oh. maybe. Yeah, can you read it? Uh, read it, Katie. Unmute yourself and read it. It's hard to read. Okay. Mm -hmm. Whatever occurs in the confused mind is regarded as the path. Everything is workable. It is a fearless proclamation. The lions roar. There you go. Beautiful. Yay. Thank you, everybody. I really appreciate it. Um, the usual song and dance. We got, you know, movie night on Sunday, uh, our Saturday dream sharing group, all the things that we're, you know, trying to offer almost every day of the week right now. So stay tuned for these interviews coming up. I'm super excited about those. Thanks for your really great questions. And uh, like I am doing more and more now to whatever extent dedication of merit means something to you, whatever merit we may have gathered that is of some value. We just send it out to the entire cosmos that really could use our help right now. So between now and next time, everybody, take care of yourself. Always nice to spend time with you. See you next week.